Welcome to Black Bottom Saints with Alice Randall, a reader's companion. I'm your host, Alice Randall. Each week on this podcast, we are discussing a chapter in the book, The Lives of the Saints, The Rich History of Black Bottom, Neighborhood, The Cocktail Recipes, and exploring what the past has to tell us about the future. We'll also be talking about the play between history and fiction and how one informs the other. Happy Juneteenth! Every year since 1865, Black people in Texas have celebrated June 19th with a variety of names. Emancipation Day, Freedom Day, Liberation Day, and my favorite, Jubilee Day. Over time, Black Americans all over the country joined the Texans in celebrating the day Black people in Galveston learned from a Union Army general that they were free, that slavery was over. Terrifyingly, Abraham Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation two and a half years earlier. Juneteenth is all about good news a long time coming, good news at long last. Joe Lewis is a patron saint celebrated on Juneteenth in Black Bottom Saints. Why? First, Joe Lewis was Black Bottom's most universally beloved citizen, but more because Black Bottom Saints is a novel all about good news a long time coming. And Joe Lewis was good news a long time coming. Joe Lewis had to be the saint celebrated on Juneteenth. The great good news announced in the pages of the Joe Lewis chapter and throughout all of Black Bottom Saints is that Black Bottom rises from the ashes. The great good news that Black Bottom, that Lower East Side neighborhood of Detroit that was an epicenter of Black art, activism, and athletics, and industry, the neighborhood that gave birth to Joe Lewis and served as a Carmel Camelot, rises from the ashes at long last. And it rises in its greatest power and grace in the fictional Joe Lewis in Black Bottom Saints. And it rises despite. The Black Bottom neighborhood received what Joe Lewis, fictional and real, fictional and historical, would have called a final and fatal knockout punch in 1963, when the Gotham Hotel, the hotel Langston Hughes called the greatest Negro hotel in the world, the hotel that was Ziggy's home for so long, the hotel that was a community center, a cultural center, and an economic center for the Black neighborhood was destroyed by a government-ordered wrecking ball in a rigged fight between the white establishment and the Black community. But the Gotham Hotel rises in the pages of the novel, and that is good news at long last. Though the federal and state government officials called the plan to knock down Black homes, decimate Black neighborhoods, and build superhighways that made it easier for whites fleeing to the suburbs to commute to the city. They called it urban renewal. Joe Lewis and Ziggy understood these actions as Negro removal and cultural genocide. The good news this book carries is that the historical Gotham that was destroyed in 1963 rises at long last in the fiction in the pages of Black Bottom Saints. As I've said, 
but also in the imagination of Black Bottom Saints readers. We don't remember the mayor who ordered the wrecking ball. Most of us don't remember Ziggy until we read the book. We don't remember Joe Lewis. We have never forgotten him. The saints with movable feasts in the novel are just a little dearer to my heart than the other saints. Joe Lewis is dear to my heart because just like Muhammad Ali, he was so pretty to look at and messes up all the dynamics and dyads about what a woman should be, what a man should be, what a they should be. We should all be pretty, pretty as Joe Lewis and powerful. But that is the smallest part of it. Each of the Black Bottom Saints has a feast day. There are 61 saints in the novel, and the vast majority have a specifically assigned date, always given in relation to Father's Day. Father's Day Sunday is the last day in Ziggy's year. The first Sunday after Father's Day is the first day in Ziggy's year. Four saints have a movable feast. Joe Lewis is one of them. The saints with movable feasts are the saints who play a powerful, positive role in shaping what it meant to the fictional Ziggy to rise to the profound challenge of being Black and American. And that challenge is both a historical reality, a present reality, and a reality in the fiction. The challenge of being Black and American. Some of it's hard. Joe Lewis was knocked down literally once and figuratively far more than once by the hardness of being Black and American. But before I tell you about that, I want to tell you about this. Joe Lewis is sport's first international superstar, not Black sport's first international superstar, America's first international superstar and Black America's first international superstar. Joe Lewis is Black pride embodied, Black pain avenged. Joe Lewis is so much more than a boxer. Let's let Ziggy tell it. I'm going to read you just a little paragraph from the novel. Joe Lewis was a global hero, got there in three steps. First, he was our hero when he whooped Braddock. Then he knocked out Mark Smelling in 1938, and he was America's hero. Then when the Nazis walking all about, trampling everything and the rise of Nazism, he became the world's hero. The way Lewis knocked out Schmeling was the way Churchill wanted to knock out Hitler, the way France wanted to knock out Mussolini. Writing the Joe Lewis chapter was a big challenge because the bold strokes of his story are so well and commonly known. To bring Joe Lewis to life in the 21st century, I depended on research and on invention. My research involved combing through 20 years of columns the historical Ziggy Johnson published in the Real Michigan Chronicle, reading books, scholarly articles, and conducting my own interviews. Research led me to find out about his relationship with Elsie Roxborough, the daughter of one of his primary backers, and research led me to discover he had had his photographic portrait made by the renowned Carl Van Vechten. It also led me to a story that shined a spotlight on the importance of Joe Lewis, not to just men, but to young women. It was the story of a girl who drank poison when Joe Lewis lost one of his fights. 
Again, I will quote Ziggy from the novel. When Max Schmeling knocked him out in 1936, a Black girl in New York City was so distraught about the outcome of that fight, she went into a pharmacy and drank poison. Joe Lewis's rise from Alabama, from the Black Alabama of cotton fields and coal mines, to stand proud and fight in Detroit, to symbolically defend his body and his brilliance, first in front of Detroit, then in front of the world with sword and shield for a wide swath of Black Americans and a wider swath of American psyches and souls. Joe Lewis was sword and shield for Ziggy and for me. That is why Joe Lewis is one of the saints is honored with a movable feast day. The movable feasts are the feasts no one should miss. Everyone should celebrate. The movable feast days were given to the saints I consider most essential, more essential than the others, because they celebrate their Blackness and their Americanness at once, at a time like the present time, a time that makes it seem impossible to be Black and American and celebrate. These saints embody the conflict, sometimes at great cost, sometimes achieving profound resolution. Joe Lewis achieved profound resolution, not just for himself, but more importantly, for hundreds of thousands, for millions of others, literally. The late arriving news at the heart of the Joe Lewis story shouts loud that a lot of people celebrate Juneteenth with a focus on the wrong act. Most focus on the white Union general announcing that slavery had ended. Ziggy, fictional and historical, would have directed that spotlight, that limelight, in a different direction. Ziggy puts the spotlight, not on the general, but on the everyday Black people. Some cowboys, some fishermen, some dock workers, some field hands, some cooks, some children, some women, some others, some men who found a way, allowed a bright, a true way to create a monument to their freedom, to their ability to rise from the ashes of slavery, to rise from the ashes of having essential information withheld from them, to rise from those ashes and flout their freedom by celebrating themselves and their power to shine a limelight on their ability to create new rituals of joy. That's what Juneteenth is, a new ritual of joy. And that's exactly what Joe Lewis was. A Joe Lewis boxing match was a new ritual of joy. It wasn't a slugfest. It wasn't brutal. It wasn't a display of Black violence. It wasn't even centrally a performance of Black power overtaking white power. At its heart, it was a transformation of the brutal into a ballet, into a celebration of human grace and power, of human restraint and beauty. Watching Joe Lewis fight or hearing his fight on the radio was a new ritual of joy for Black America, just like Juneteenth. Another ritual of joy, romantic love. Romantic love embodies our humanity. 
Here I am not talking about sex. I'm talking about tenderness. I'm talking about Joe Lewis and the playwright Elsie Roxborough. I'm talking about moonlight, roses, kisses, brown skin. I'm talking about the treacle sweet and profound love songs of Motown. But before that was Smokey Robinson crooning, it was Joe and Elsie. And it is class divisions within the Black community keeping Joe and Elsie apart, but not before they had tenderly loved, had romantically loved. Joe Lewis and Elsie Roxborough, both Black Bottom saints, are in Ziggy's mind, Black Bottoms, Romeo and Juliet. And if you will zig and zag with me into a small digression, like all Romeo and Juliet stories, Joe and Elsie raise basic human unraced questions about just how much say any parent should have over the romantic love life of their progeny. Plot spoiler, just like in the days of Shakespeare, interference can lead to death. That comes later in the novel. No one dies in the Joe Lewis chapter. Here in the Joe Lewis chapter, as we are invited to celebrate Juneteenth, there's just the sweet ache of good news at long last and the sweet ache of unrequited love. And there is this thing I invented, an invented scene of Joe Lewis taking the love he has felt for Elsie, but doesn't get to express out to a corner bar to protect a young woman he doesn't really know in honor of Elsie, austere and unexpected, but a ritual of joy that I invented in honor of the facts I learned about Joe Lewis. Historical fiction is a mix of fact and invention. The invention reflects what I and my characters have made of the facts. A fact I loved inventing around, Idlewild is a small town in Michigan that once in the middle of the 20th century played an immense role in the life of Black Detroit and the spinning Black globe. This fact turns into imagined scenes that build out another ritual of Black joy featured in this chapter, the pleasure of encountering Joe Lewis in Idlewild. Now, first, let me back up and tell you, Idlewild was an all-Black lakeside resort community that was the weekend and summer home to Black people from all over the country, including Joe Lewis. Fictional Ziggy and historical Ziggy spent as many weekends as he could in Idlewild and at least a full week every summer. In Ziggy's mind, when Detroit was a caramel Camelot, Idlewild was a Black Eden. Joe Lewis loved to spend time in Idlewild, and the people who visited Idlewild found running into Joe Lewis a new ritual of joy. I will let Ziggy tell it. Joe Lewis, the brown bomber, the greatest fighter the world has ever seen, is Idlewild glue. Everybody wants to sit with Joe Lewis. The doctors, the doctor's wives, the hustlers, the policy kings, the numbers barons, and all their women. The dentists, the lawyers, the politicians, our butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers. Yes, I met an iron worker at Idlewild who made ornate fences and candlesticks. They all wanted to be with him too. That's how important Joe Lewis was to the globe. But just like he was important to everybody, 
and he's important to Black Americans. Joe Lewis is also specifically important to Detroit and to Black Detroit. Then and now, Joe Lewis is the heart and soul and muscle of Black Detroit embodied. Today, there are two main Joe Lewis statues in Detroit. One looks like a giant fist. One looks like a life-size sculpture of a man who could have been a preacher. The monument our novel offers is a cocktail, Dawn Come Sweet. It's one of my favorite cocktails in the novel, and it's a perfect adult prelude to a Juneteenth feast featuring Alabama barbecue and red drink in honor of Joe Lewis and Juneteenth. Libation for the feast day of Joe Lewis. Dawn comes sweet. Take two jiggers of Jamaican rum, one bar spoon of molasses, one pony of cold water. Place all ingredients into a bar glass. Stir until molasses is dissolved. Add ice. On the next episode, we will be discussing Black Bottom Saint Robert Hayden. Till then, keep zagging with Ziggy and always remember... Love is the strut and hate is the stumble. This podcast was produced by Chelsea Crowell and Aaron McNally. The theme from Black Bottom Saints was written and recorded by Lewis York. Nashville Women Blues was recorded by Reese Palmer and written by Bessie Smith. The novel Black Bottom Saints is published by Amistad, HarperCollins, and is available at your favorite bookstore and on Audible. Find out more at alicerandall.com.